The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 20th chapter. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now God is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to God all of them are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, if train A leaves Milwaukee at 1.05 p.m., traveling at an average speed of 90 miles per hour, and train B leaves Chicago at 1.15 p.m., traveling at an average speed of 85 miles per hour, how many passengers are in coach? I mean, that might as well be a part of our gospel story today, right? It reads like a bad, confusing math problem. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died, and the second and the third, and so in the same way, all seven died, and finally, the woman also died. So whose wife will she be? It's a bizarre question, so maybe we need a little context. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've heard these characters before from our gospel readings. The two leading and competing Jewish sectarian groups in Jesus' day. Now, for our purposes, it's enough to distinguish them on just one point, the resurrection. Now, like most Jews at the time, the Pharisees professed a belief in some kind of resurrection. But the Sadducees disagreed because they based their understanding of God and how theology and the world worked only on the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And so because there was no direct evidence for the resurrection in those books, that meant it didn't exist. The Sadducees were traditionalists like that. But the Pharisees took into consideration other sacred writings and interpretations as well. But one thing they had in common was this desire to trap Jesus, which is where we find ourselves in this chapter of Luke's gospel. It feels like an interrogation room, and Jesus is the primary suspect, and they start off right away with the question, by what authority are you doing these things in response to his teachings and healings? And then they say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor 
And then after Jesus skillfully defeats those initial questions, the Sadducees fire away with this bizarre, contrived scenario about, let's face it, what had to be one exhausted woman, seven husbands. But then ultimately Jesus prevails again in this story. And in the verses that follow, the scribes, perhaps in the school of the Pharisees themselves, applaud Jesus' answer that you have answered well, they say, as though he has taken their side and vindicated their side of this debate. Either way, it gives us an intriguing insight into one of the big religious questions of the time. Is there a resurrection or not? Now, fast forward to the second letter to the Thessalonian church, and it seems like not much has changed. Debates about the end times or the day of the Lord, as they call it, still rage. It's alarmism run wild. Read those verses in between that got cut out of our first reading today, and there's some pretty strange stuff that they came up with. And then even today, 2,000 years into Christianity, fanatic doomsday preachers still dream up some pretty bizarre scenarios about the end of the world. And so it seems like maybe there's something to this resurrection question. So back to our gospel text. Surely Jesus has the answer, right? Well, in classic Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer their question directly. But then he comes up with this bold assertion of his own, that God is God of the living, not of the dead. So the Sadducees ask this bizarre, hypothetical question about a resurrection they don't even believe in just to try to trap Jesus. They don't care about what happens to this widowed, vulnerable woman after death any more than they don't care about what happens to her in life. But then Jesus redirects their focus. As one biblical scholar extrapolates and expands this assertion, saying, God is a God of the living, and the living are hungry, thirsty, exploited, homeless, abused, overworked, out of work, lonely, despairing, addicted. And then the Thessalonians have some bizarre ideas too about the end of the world, but so much so that they've apparently lost sight of their present reality and what it means to live together as people of faith in community. But the epistle writer similarly redirects their focus and calls them back to what they know. Stand firm. Hold fast to your traditions and teachings, the teachings of your faith that we taught you. And I can't help but notice the parallels in these two scenarios with the Sadducees and the Thessalonians and the advice given to them. Why spend so much time worrying about these hypotheticals in the future, bizarre questions and bizarre scenarios at the expense of overlooking or neglecting present realities? Today, it seems like the church is really good at finding itself in the place of the Thessalonians or the Sadducees. We speculate about our future as a church all the time. 
We dedicate so much time and energy to talking about declining church attendance trends and desperately trying to attract new members, those proverbial young people. And then in our Monday through Friday lives, outside of this place, we get caught up, well, for some of us, uh, but in our Monday through Friday lives, we get caught up in productivity and proving ourselves by our achievements and accomplishments, placing our value uh, as human beings on whether we'll fail or succeed. And so, in his own way of refocusing us, I've been mulling over this poem by the farmer, activist, and poet Wendell Berry this week, who asks us to invest our time differently. He says, Every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Praise ignorance. Ask the questions that have no answers. In a phrase, Barry summarizes at the end of his poem, practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. What does that look like? Love our enemies? Pray for them? Befriend those we disagree with? Practice reconciliation? Embrace mystery? Be open to something new and different, or maybe even a little uncomfortable. Because resurrection itself is unpredictable. Whose wife is she anyway? The question again. But it's a question that assumes there's a single easy answer. It presumes predictability. The Sadducees thought that they had Jesus trapped and pinned down and exposed but Jesus had other ideas. As one pastor writes, resurrection is unpredictable. We think we know how the story ends. When people are killed and buried, they are dead. That is the end. The political power and show of the day the Roman Empire had triumphed. The Jewish leaders had protected their understanding of faith in God. But God, in the act of resurrecting Jesus, was proclaiming, I am not done there is more, and this more will change everything you think and understand about life and how the world works. Resurrection is so radically different than anything we've come to expect. Resurrection is a gift. And it's not ultimately about us. It's not about what we do or accomplish as though resurrection is some kind of prize to be won or bought from hard work. Resurrection is about what Christ does for us. Indeed, what Christ has already done by conquering death and all evil, and what Christ continues to do through us as we actively resist the sinful structures and the ways of this world that degrade and demean our fellow human beings. And so this is what it means to practice resurrection and to be children of the resurrection. In our baptismal covenant, we promise to strive toward the peace, justice, and wholeness of all creation, to actively seek to heal the brokenness of the world, to be open to the new things that God is doing in our midst. 
in the reality of resurrection, the old ways of this world that bring harm and death and destruction no longer have the final word. By his resurrection, Christ breaks down the walls that divide us. This weekend, while the world remembers the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, we are acutely aware that there are still walls and barriers to be overcome. The walls of division that say you must be this or that, that you must vote or believe this way or that way, that you're in or out. But in Christ, there is something new entirely. A new creation, a resurrected creation. New life breaking in and sprouting forth, breaking down every wall and every barrier. If God is a God of the living, and we are made in the image of that God, then we are a people of the living, called to serve and to love the living. We are God's beloved children, children of the resurrection. And so, for God's sake, and for the sake of this weary world, let's live like it. Let's practice resurrection together. Amen.